Cheerio! As human beings, don't we enjoy enjoyment? This is Five Golden Things, The Liberty Lists, a podcast of whimsy from Liberty Church Collingswood and libertycollingswood.org. We'll hear from friends as we explore everything from potent potables to morsel delectables, awkward laughables to moment teachables. You'll get lots of different categories, but remember that for each one, there can be only five. Plus a mulligan or two. Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Five Golden Things, the Liberty List. I am with my good friend, Jesse Carroll. And Jesse, how are you? I am well, Jim. Oh, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm really excited to do this podcast. So, Turtle Loves, if you listen to Courtney talking about why Bruce Springsteen was so weird in, for, for, for New Jersey people. It's, it's true. I'm a Bruce Springsteen fanatic. I am to Bruce Springsteen what Jesse Carroll is to the Beatles. And so our topic tonight is the top five fifth Beatles. Jesse, I was thinking one of the, one of the questions that I honestly don't have an answer to between the two of us, mm. who... Do I know more about Bruce, or do you know more about the Beatles? I, I'm, I'm afraid to I'm, claim my own victory I'm here. Pretty, it could be you. I'm actually pretty certain you know more about Bruce. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting because, like, Bruce has had a much longer career than the Beatles have. True. It is apples and oranges. I, I, I admittedly have not, like, gotten seriously into, like, Beatles solo work so much, which is kind of like another... Right. sort of like yep. spectrum of, of Beatle fandom that I've never like quite gotten into. I'm very much like, you know, I'm very much in the like, you know, years of the group itself yep. and, and their tenure. That's that's my yeah. area of interest. I mean, I feel like for you, like you, you know, you're you're up to date <laughs> on the most recent I, Bruce album. I, I celebrate his entire you, catalog. You re- <laughs> <laughs> That's right, just like Michael Bolton. Yeah. Uh, you read, you read the books, which I'm working on. Mark Lewison is writing the right. second volume yeah. of the trilogy very slowly. Well, yep. Too slowly, but he's very good. So you gotta give him his time. Right. So he's we'll the get George R. R. Martin. That's right. Of... Exactly. So yeah. The, but um, but yeah, I mean, you know, my uh. I, I think it's safe to say you know more, more Bruce than I, I do Beatles. Well, I actually would disagree with that, which is why I'm fascinated Ooh. to have this conversation. Ooh, we'll find out tonight if that's... If yes. That's so, so before we jump into the topic, Jesse, give me, give me your Beatles testimony. Why, why Jesse Carroll? Why Beatles? With mm. uh, like under two mm. hours of the... Um... I mean, the, the simplest answer to that is my parents. Yeah. Um, you know, mom and dad both children of the 60s mm-hmm. they were into the group you know when they were a group yeah um, the ogs yep um uh, my dad has told me he remembers actually seeing hard day's night in the theater and singing along to the songs really um, i don't think yeah. i knew that yeah huh. um they but i think they both saw the the ed sullivan performance the right this one yeah um you know when it when it aired and just hmm. um and my my parents you know from earliest days just exposed my sisters and I to the music of that era and um I think my first like real exposure to the Beatles the earliest thing I can remember my earliest Beatle memory is actually yeah. watching the the infomercial for the Beatles one uh greatest hits set 
right. which came out like the like late nineties. But yeah, um, I can. I mean, I can pretty vividly remember like not only the sounds but the images of like yeah, you know, they're like playing snip, you know, a few second snippets of different songs, right, and just being wowed by that. Um, I think my next memory after that is we had like a we had um we taped this Ed Sullivan show special of like you know kind of greatest hits yeah, Sull- yeah. Ed Sullivan show and they came to you know the you know centerpiece of you know any Ed Sullivan show yeah uh, review is you know when the Beatles right so like premiered. VHS tape um, yeah you taped it yeah but we taped it and then wow. seeing their um for that for that documentary is when they played I want to hold your hand which is the um they played. I think four songs mm-hmm. and on that episode and that was the last one they did and i remember like that was my first time like seeing a video clip of the beatles and it was yeah. just and i had already like gotten excited about the group beforehand and, like already started listening to them and that was right. just like that was just um mesmerizing like very like i think i probably felt a little bit of that excitement that like everybody was feeling at the time yeah. that, that episode aired and for sure um yeah, so that, you know, um, so it kind of started with the greatest hits, mm-hmm. like, you know, becoming very familiar with those. It was probably like, I don't know, late elementary into middle school when mm-hmm. like the the album sort of came onto my, um, onto my frequency. Okay. Um, we kind of slowly started getting the different um, albums on CD. Right. And I remember when like Sgt. Pepper came to the mix. I remember Rubber Soul coming and just like this is new. This is different. And like one interesting thing yeah. about um, the albums is that so the Beatles released their um, material in such a way at least in Britain mm-hmm. where they made a point of not um, like if they put out a song as a single they did not put it on the album. They wanted fans exactly. to get their right. money yeah. for So, like, yep. there are no singles from Sgt. Pepper. There are no singles from Rubber Soul. There are no singles right. um, from some of the other early albums. Um, White Album. So, um, so that, you know, and that, like, you know, fans were getting their money's worth back when they were first released in the 60s, and mm-hmm. like, I was getting my money's worth, you know, in the 2000s. So that was crazy. That's great. Uh, Apple Music, the original yes. Apple. I remember um, hearing the White Album for the first time, mm-hmm. um, which I think was the perfect way to hear it in hindsight. It was on a cassette tape that my dad had made from his vinyl copy of wow. the album. Oh, love it. That was a trip. Hearing hearing Revolution 9 on a <laughs> cassette tape in our, or I'd, 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 our car. To- or, or total analog was experience. Just like, yeah. yeah. That was initiation. Oh, sure. man. Jesse, that's yeah. awesome. I remember, and maybe our experiences are similar in this way. When, when I was getting into Bruce in high school, I and my parents were not really that, that into music, uh, nor specifically Bruce. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would space out when I would go to the local music store and buy the CDs because I wanted to give give time to absorb this one mm-hmm. and then had done a lot of background reading before mm-hmm. going to the next one. And my brother-in-law, Victor, had on vinyl, he's about 20, 20 years older, uh, 15, 20 years older than I am. He got Bruce's original albums on vinyl in the 70s and recorded on cassette tape mm-hmm. Bruce's first couple of albums. And so I would just listen to him constantly in mm-hmm. the car. Mm-hmm. 
remembering, I think to this day, I remember the skips and pops. So when I listen to those albums just on CD or Spotify or something, I'm, I'm still waiting for those specific it's supposed to be a pop, clicks. right? Right. It's yeah. to crackle here. What's yeah. going on? Yeah. Yeah. So oh, it's it, it's a personal experience. Mm -hmm. And so, Jesse, we'll learn more about your relationship with the Beatles as we go into these categories. Explain mm -hmm. the category itself to me, and then we'll do your number five and count down. Yes. Yeah, so the category of the the so-called fifth Beatle is... Right. It actually, like, people started, like, talking about the fifth Beatle, like, almost as soon as the you know, as, almost as soon as Beatlemania began. Yeah. Um, the the phrase was um, allegedly coined by uh, Murray the K, who was a New York oh, uh, yeah. DJ. Um, uh -huh. was actually, you can um, see a clip of him. There's a documentary of the Beatles' first US visit. Yeah. He's saying on, you know, on his show, like, you know, he's, he's you know, and he had big hand in, like, giving Beatles lots of airplay and, like, right. helping to usher their... Um, yeah, like throughout yeah, like 50s and 60s and 70s, like specific DJs, mm -hmm. like every band that went big had a couple of DJs yeah. that they could point to and Just say. Just like today's Philly artists depend on WXPN. Like right. That was going on then. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Presented by Subaru. And, and he says at one point in the show, like as he's you know playing the records, another week of this and I'm going to be the fifth Beatle, baby. And The rest is history. I don't think, I, I don't know if we can verify that, that he was the first person to say that. He might have been, but. Yeah. It's the category itself is a little bit irking to to me because I think part of it comes from this like kind of cynical idea of like you know surely four lads from Liverpool couldn't have been that brilliant there had oh, to be someone else huh. to, I don't know if, like I mean like I never thought of I never it that way but that makes perfect say, sense I never hear people say that but like I get that vibe a little bit of like who was the secret person that like maybe like right so there's that side of it but th at the same time i i get why it's a category and i think it's it's a really interesting thought experiment because like it it's certainly true that for just like for any band there are other people yeah outside the band itself right who are instrumental to that group's success that's certainly the case for the beatles and really um key ways as well yeah and, and so inside baseball turtle doves with this podcast it had been on my radar since uh, very deep into the annals of Five Golden Things, years and years and years ago, that Jesse Carroll would at least do a Beatles podcast, if, if not more podcasts. But the whole idea was we wanted to find an angle in that was not just like Jesse, your top five songs or top five albums, but to top figure... five Beatles songs you've never heard of, which is in the category because those songs <laughs> yeah. exist. You can do that with Bruce. You can't do that with Beatles because we know all of them. But finding some interesting angle in to the Beatles oeuvre, 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 oeuvre. Horse dwarfs. Right. And, and I, I think this is a brilliant way to go about it. So without further oeuvre. Let's go ahead and hear your number five. Number five. Number five. <clears throat> so just, Woo! I guess one more disclaimer for, for this list. I mean, there. Um, Jesse, that was a <laughs> No, that was the perfect lift off. Okay, we're coming back down. Well, Jim, <laughs> I'm taking the mic here. <laughs> and I will say, I'll preface my list a little bit in saying that, like, typically, you know, other people will compile their list to Fifth Beatles, and they typically include either people who either like former members of the band, like formal members of the band at certain points, right. people who played with the group in some capacity or people gotcha. involved in the production yep. of the group's 
Okay. Or, or management or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, so my, you know, my list is going to contain a mix of that. And I think probably one entry that's a little unorthodox, who I don't tend to see on like other people's lists, but I'm going to go mm, with it. Okay. It's fascinating. That's coming yeah. up. But, but number five okay. is definitely somebody who um, is talked about a lot in this category. Billy Preston. Of course. Um, so Good old Billy. He, um, for those of you who have um, seen the recent Get Back documentary on Disney Plus, mm-hmm. um, then you've seen Billy Preston feature prominently. Yeah. Um, so, um, so we're talking back now to. Um, so what what I'm referring to specifically is early 1969 when the Beatles were working on what was then called the Get Back Project, um, which then morphed into the album Let It Be. Yep. Um, so they, you know, that those sessions were famous for just the Beatles having really bad vibes not getting along yeah ideas not quite coming together george quits temporarily he quit for about a week during those sessions so just like things not going the way they you know they wanted um yeah i think things were falling apart at that yeah and so um so there was a certain point during the sessions when um billy preston popped in i'll pause here just to give a little background Billy Preston himself. He, um, he was a, you know, started off as a very much child prodigy, um, taught himself piano in Oregon, just a brilliant yep. keyboardist whose kind of, um, background was primarily in like soul gospel music. He was, yep. I think he started playing for Mahalia Jackson, Mahalia Jackson at mm-hmm. age 10. Okay. <laughs> um, appearing on like other shows, like at a ridiculously young age, playing yeah. for other artists. Um, just was, was he on what was called the the Chitlin Circuit? The he if, probably was. If he was playing with Holly Jackson. Yeah. He probably well logged a lot of gigs. Well, another a another places. person who he ended up playing for more famously was Little Richard. Right. Um, yep. Which is actually. Um, the first time Billy Preston crossed paths with the Beatles was uh, during the Beatles' um, tenure in Hamburg mm-hmm. in the, like, 1960 to 62. Yep. It was the years playing there. Um, Billy Preston was touring with Little Richard at the time, and they had a residency in, in Hamburg at the same time. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Huh. yeah. So that's where the Beatles first met him, and he was, he was like, probably, like, 16 or 17 at the right. time. But, um, you know, just... You know, rocking the organ with um, Little Richard. <laughs> and wow. so, you know, they cross paths then and then later. Um, get Back Sessions come along and Billy Preston's in London, I think, for like a TV show or something. He's mm-hmm. doing something there. And then pretty like kind of out of the blue, the Beatles sort of rope him in to the sessions. They ask him to just play for them on, on different tracks. And so he did. Yeah. Um, was it like an SOS? Like, hey, we like we're. Uh, I mean, the Beatles probably didn't like. I'm sure they did not like advertise it that yeah. way or like play it off that way. It could have been just in their, in their heart of hearts, but for whatever reason, they asked him to do that. Mm-hmm. It it worked really well. Like, just his presence, Billy Preston's presence, was just really um, crucial in just light like easing the tension that was 
going on and just the the vibes got much better right it was yeah. kind of like you have a guest over your house and everybody gets on their best behavior yeah. it was a little like that um but he just gelled brilliantly with the group and there have been different people who have you know played with played with the beatles over the years yeah um you know either as formal members session men or just for sure um stand-ins whatever but billy preston is actually the only person on my list who actually played with the group <laughs> so spoiler alert um, right you guys can probably eliminate esoteric, a few people from right now but um esoteric but, five fifth beatles so he in, in in some ways he kind of redeemed the get back session so he um for those of you familiar with um you know the beatles recordings um some billy preston's most prominent moments are on uh, include on get back mm -hmm. um he plays the electric organ yeah electric piano on that just um perfect solo mm -hmm. it, it that song would not be what it is without yeah that that piece of it um the other really famous moment is on let it be right um where the um hammond comes in very like gospel church organ style um kind of midway before it, the guitar it, solo it is such a gospel song or go mm -hmm. gospel feeling song in yeah so many ways well, i mean i think paul definitely wrote it that way yeah and like what better to like what a better way to sweeten the song than bring in an actual like gospel expert yeah. player to, right to, to add that all that experience behind yeah. him yeah so yeah some work on um you know other work on albums that ended up on let it be or um other b-sides abbey road he's also yeah. for the sessions so like you know he was not playing the moog orion on mr moonlight though no <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh he he would have played better solo had it right yeah but um so yeah he it actually the beatles apparently toyed around with the idea of actually like letting him into the group as a permanent member so so was the fact that there were the four beatles was there ever a conscious decision that the membership was closed or or was it more Hey, we have we are the Beatles, but it wasn't necessarily a closed set, and nobody happened to come into that orbit. I mean, I've I've never read anything or heard anything that they like closed off membership like at a certain point. Yeah, I think like when when Ringo replaced Pete Best, I think I think they all definitely felt that like okay, we've got the, the band right was chemistry here, and they really wanted Ringo, and they yeah. they really felt like. He was, you know, kind of the, the missing piece that they needed. Yeah. And, like, you know, this is kind of speculating, but, like, I would think, like, once they, like, hit worldwide fame and they're on this absolute whirlwind, you know, breakneck speed going yeah. through what they went through, like, they think, like, they couldn't have, like, thought about, like... Couldn't have onboarded somebody onto onboard somebody and yeah. just, the like... The train was moving And there so was such fast. tremendous success, like... No one in the right not minds would have changed anything about the formula. I don't yeah. think like if they had talked about letting in another member, or kicking mm -hmm. someone out. I don't think like I don't think George Martin, Brian Epstein, anyone would have you know EMI would have stood for it. Right, this is too successful. Too we iconic. can't mess with this. But by yeah. the time Get Back came along and like you know there had already been like attempt like you know attempts to quit the group. They already broken up in in some certain ways. ways yeah. I think that was more on the table at that point. 
apparently it was John that proposed it to Paul to let Billy Preston in, and apparently huh. Paul's answer was that it's hard enough with four. Like, why do we want to let a fifth person <laughs> in the mix? And he was, he was probably right. Yeah. But it's good anyway. So, so was Billy ever dismissed, or was it that he was added to those recording sessions? I, I guess the Beatles weren't playing live at that point. No, they weren't. I mean, like, with the exception of the rooftop concert, right. which Billy Preston did um, yeah. play for. Um, I mean, like, he was never an actual, like, member of the group, so it's not like he could have been kicked out because he was never, like, right. brought in. I mean, yeah. very, and, and in a lot of ways, too, he was, you know, a session player, just like another session player. It's like Eric Clapton plays yeah. on all my guitars. Like, we've seen he's uncredited, you know, on, yep. on that album. Yeah. Um, Billy Pre- Actually, one notable thing about Billy Preston is that the original release for Get Back as a single, the Beatles with Billy Preston is how it was released. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Is is that the only one where it was the Beatles with somebody? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's never, so that's a high honor. Co-billing uh-huh. <laughs> the Beatles with Jesse Carroll. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. <laughs> oh, happen. man. Well, that's awesome. Anything else about Billy Preston? Um, he went on after the Beatles breakup to do quite a bit of work um, yeah. on Beatles solo projects um, with John, George, and... Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, he also was one of the founding members of Ringo's All Star Band. Um, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Funny. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, he definitely went on to. Bruce Connection um, there, Nils Lofgren, one of the East Street Band guitarists. Also. And Clarence Clements, the original. That's right. Saxophones. Yep. That's right. Um, so, so, yeah, just a brilliant musician. Um, and just really left an indelible mark on, on the group's recordings. And, yeah, he's... He earned it. He earned it, for sure. Billy Preston, and still alive, right? No, he died back in the, like, mid-2000s, I think. Um, Sorry, Billy. <laughs> is, this like the oh, time no. I, is this like the time I told you that... Um, Sharon Jones died, and you didn't know? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, I actually did cry a little bit. Yeah. So, Yeah. Okay, my, my, my sister didn't my softly. sister didn't know that Frank Sinatra was dead until like twenty years after he was <laughs> dead. And she like mourned for about a week after that. Next thing you're gonna tell me is that John's not alive. Hey oh sorry. Oh too soon. Yeah, okay. Too soon. <laughs> Let, let's strike that for the record. Number four. <laughs> number four. Okay. Uh, number four is Jeff Emmerich. Um, who's Jeff Emmerich, Jim? Pop quiz. Uh, so he's the brother of the director Roland Emmerich, who did Independence Day. <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> Jeff Emmerich. <laughs> That's all I got. Uh, Father, his, no. his dad. Okay, Jeff Emmerich. Um, yeah. The he was a recording engineer um, for EMI. Okay. Um, so recording engineers are very integral part of the uh, music making process. So, um, <laughs> I, know, I know that part. Oh, I know you know that. <laughs> I know. Turtle doves, yeah, for, for the turtle doves. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so <laughs> yeah, the recording engineer is the guy who you know works the mixing desk for sessions. Yeah. Does mic placements and like you know, kind of. Yeah. Does sort of like if, if you think of like you kind of use the movie analogy if like if the 
musicians are actors and the producer is the director mm-hmm. then the engineer is like the cinematographer yeah you know it's the director yeah, sort of like calling some shots and like kind of guiding you know along with the musicians like what yeah. they want the music to sound like right the engineer is the guy who actually like makes it happen gets, makes it happen gets yeah. it done figures it out mm-hmm. so um jeff emmerich he joined the beatles as engineer in 1966 during the okay. revolver sessions yeah um he was i think 20 years old at that time so ridiculously young really but but very talented and like um talented enough that he had like really impressed emi their previous engineer norman smith um who had um recorded their like mm-hmm. their like beatlemania era yeah hits he had been promoted producer um so they need somebody else. Um, and Jeff Emmer came in and, like, from day one, just made some really um, brilliant um, recording decisions, mm-hmm. like, in, um, and just really uh, helping the Beatles really experiment with their sound. And this was a time when, like, as they got into Revolver, right. when the Beatles were really uh, keen on that. Um, psychedelia was fast yeah. approaching at this time right. the beatles were getting near the end of their years as a touring group revolver mm-hmm. was the last album that they made before they stopped touring altogether, and that's when they really wanted to focus on recording so um so during that so album, he was there for the leap from the like those early singles mm-hmm. to the more complex psychedelic mm-hmm. the yeah. whole that, that whole shift yeah yeah huh. he uh, engineered that, uh <laughs> sound but yeah no, he he absolutely was so treating the studio as its own art form exactly treating the studio as an instrument right itself um so during revolver was he selected by george martin not but I mean, he was selected by the like by know, emi the big the company huh. um but um so on revolver he did things like he fed John Lennon's vocal on Tomorrow Never Knows through a Leslie speaker cabinet. Yeah. Um, All like, those innovative. So just, you know, completely altering that sound. He, um, recording of Eleanor Rigby, he mic'd the um, strings mm-hmm. super close, which you never do. Right. Uh, you know, for, for strings or like yeah. the, you know, classical players are horrified to, you know, see that happen. But that was right. so, to get that was in order to get a more like sharper sort of biting icy sound out of the strings like when you hear that like attack like as that song comes yeah. in and you hear that like right. very stark like kind of haunting string sound on that track that's yeah. that's Jeff Emmerich you know engineering that and getting that sound um you know and other you know forms of experimentation and mic placement like um or like things that like we don't even like you know think about twice today like you know stuffing the bass drum with sheets to like deaden the sound and yeah you know um and just finding ways to make that work it's kind of a it's a little bit of a like under the radar sort of like thankless like position being engineer but yeah. it's it's crucial and he did it brilliantly yeah here's and maybe maybe this is too much beatles sycophantism but but i think it's possible that in some ways the beatles are actually underrated in terms of their 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 innovations in the 60s i remember 
reading about Columbia Records in New York in the 1960s when Dylan went electric and Columbia just had no idea how to record rock music mm-hmm. and 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 Dylan's music was a lot simpler in terms of recording technique sure. like I love Blonde on Blonde but Blonde on Blonde is much simpler as a recording process than something like or more of a live recording process right too. yeah than 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 Revolver is and so when those Columbia studios in New York, that's kind of like cavemen mm-hmm. compared to what Emmerich and Martin were doing mm-hmm. at literally the same time period. Yeah. And, and I guess it wasn't the, until the Beach Boys, which I guess were contemporaneous, but on the East Coast, the, they just didn't have that, that vision for, yeah. well, for any of I, that recording technique stuff. I think a lot of it honestly depends on like, you know, you know, if you're going to make a record that's going to have like any real impact on, you know, you know, national sales or like, or yeah. like that, like you're kind of at, or at least back then you were certainly at the mercy of the record company and you really could only do what the yeah, record totally company different ball game then. allowed you to do, <clears throat> right. gave you money to do the, um, the blessings that the Beatles had and that Jeff Emmerich had is that the Beatles were so successful that yeah. they were given the freedom to do what they really wanted in the studio, and they, they could, you know, when when it, when it came around to Sgt. Pepper, I mean, they, you know, they booked ridiculous amounts of yeah. studio time, just lavished tons of. I mean, like studio time then and now is ridiculously right. expensive. Right, cost was no object. Yeah, more or. They they ran up bills yeah. as I understand. And they it, and but. they um, and even at that time George Martin had actually left EMI and like started his own independent right. company. Yeah. And EMI could have replaced him with somebody else, like somebody from their own oh, um, huh. you know, okay. from their own stock of producers, but right. they didn't because the formula was so successful. Yeah. And so, you know, that gave Beatles, George Martin, Jeff Emmerich kind of free reign to like really hone in on like and Revolver was very much like you know, Rubber Soul they definitely like gotten a lot of that like mm-hmm you know warmed up and like gotten like a lot of like experimentation like, right on that but revolver yeah. was when really the floodgates opened and by yeah. the time pepper came around like they were ready to create their masterpiece yeah yeah do you think what do you think about and and this is where i'm outstripped in in beatles knowledge but is it fair to say rubber soul renaissance Revolver, Baroque, Sgt. Pepper, Rococo? I put Magical Mystery Tour as more Rococo. Okay. And like, you know, because I, I, I'm not a huge fan of Rococo. It's sort of like... Right, yeah, it's you know, like over it's, the top. It's Baroque. And it's it, my, my, um, it's human, curdled by My humanities point. teacher in high school described Rococo as uh, Baroque on crack. Right, yeah, <laughs> yep. And, yeah. um... Yeah, it's turning I, in on itself. Yeah. Running out um, of ideas. And like, yeah, Magical Mystery Tour was kind of like the like, it had all the psychedelia of Sgt. Pepper without mm-hmm. the like, just without the like, with less original ideas. Without, without the, the vision. Brilliance, without the vision. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, it, it um, you know, and you can only, you know, you can only have so much in the tank. I mean, like, it's almost like they expended so much creative energy on Sgt. Pepper that yeah. they didn't have much left over for Magical Mystery Tour. Brian Epstein also died in the middle of the middle right. of 67 when, yep. like, 
Masquerade Mystery Tour was a thing, and they were mm-hmm. doing the film idea, and just like and they were sort of like right. kind of a little lost yeah. during that time. Huh. Um, Interesting. So one one more thing about Emmerich. Is there one touch from Revolver that you can point to and say, I love how Emmerich did that? Maybe it's something you've already mentioned before. Yeah, well, definitely the strings on Eleanor Rigby, um, the work on um, like Tomorrow Never Knows, which is like the you know the trippiest track on on yeah. there. Um, like I'm trying to think of other moments on that track that were like either his idea or like something he really like figured out. I mean, like there's like you know the zany sound effects on Yellow Submarine. Um, things like that. There's the backwards guitar work on, um, on seeing two tracks on the, on Love You Too and Tomorrow Never Knows is backwards guitar, which is, I mean, that's like, that's mostly George Harrison, like in his work. Yeah. But like, and, um, but yeah, I mean, just the, like, while Revolver is not my favorite album, just the sound of the album, just the, the sheen it has, the, um, the, it's a unified statement. There, there's something of an otherworldliness about it, even though it's like, it's more grounded than than Pepper and less psychedelic. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's just brilliantly recorded, brilliantly mixed, and the mixing part of it too. That's a whole nother stage yeah. of um, recording, um, which falls on the engineer to to maneuver and just the just the the way everything's balance the way like guitars and vocals mm-hmm. and other effects all just weave in and out of each other the drum sound um things that are like a little less like palpable and a little more like subjective i mean like you just you just get that sound and you know like emmerich was the one who who recorded it and then like Boom. then you get to pepper like where he does other brilliant things on sergeant pepper there's you know the story of um Strawberry Fields Forever, which was actually recorded for the Sgt. Pepper sessions, but Lisa's a yeah. single, where John Lennon wanted to use two different takes, one for the first half, one for the second half. The only problem was they were in two different keys. So it was... Huh. And, which he you know, knew. And, I... Well, no. George Martin had to tell him they're in two different keys. And John was like, well, figure it out. <laughs> That's your job. So George Martin and Jeff Emmerich, they figured it out. They like literally they like, slow down they the... sped up one take, slowed down the other, kind of welded them together. <laughs> Crazy. And huh. to, to brilliant results. And you know, and like huh. you know, and like it was definitely a situation where like the Beatles, you know, are telling their, you know, producer and engineers what they want. Yeah. You know, how to get their sound and like <laughs> and they're, they're doing it for so like it's you know, it's the Beatles kind of giving their like uneducated um, descriptions of what they want and kind of hard to understand directions. Yeah. It's on George Martin to like kind of interpret it for them or like notate the, you know, yeah. s- solo that Paul hums for right, Penny right, Lane or right. whatever. But it's on the engineer to like actually get it done. Work out the mixing <laughs> yeah. desk and like we know how hard it is to like get sound working at church. Like imagine like, yeah. you know, capturing lightning in a bottle like on. On that mixing desk. Well, the, I'm at, at Liberty Callings, but I'm the vision guy. <laughs> and, and somebody else yeah. takes care of <laughs> capturing your vision <laughs> in your uh, countrymen. Yeah, can't you uh, 
you know, it's a different key. It's just working out. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that's yeah. fine. You know. the, my harmonica's not in the same key as Tyler's piano. Come on. You yeah. can figure it out, right. Jake. Like, yeah. Post-production. That's, that's yeah. why they call it post-production. That's awesome. Okay, Jesse, number three. Number, Let's do it. Number three. This is um, my least orthodox, but probably most interesting selection on this list. Hmm. Astrid Kirker. I thought long yes. about this one. Do you, do you, do you know Jim? Who I'm referring to? Was she Paul's girlfriend? No, he she um so she was so going back to the Beatles Hamburg um years. Yeah. She so I remember she, that name. Yeah, she's a she was a German artist, primarily photographer um who was part of the sort of like kind of mini art circle that the Beatles had become yep. acquainted with. Um, so, you know, it was her and her boyfriend at the time, Klaus Foreman, who was another, who would go on to be another, like, Beatles associate. Right. That just stumbled on the Beatles when they were playing um, the Kaiser Club. I forget which club it was, but um, just really connected with their music, kind of became fans, and the Beatles befriended them. Yeah. Um, she's probably best known for um, having become the girlfriend and later fiance of Stuart Sutcliffe. Um, right. <laughs> so um, Stuart Sutcliffe, another um, fifth Beatle candidate, um, was the original bass player for uh, the group, mm -hmm. but was primarily a um, visual artist, painter right, by right. trade, but the Beatles needed a bass player, so they kind of convinced him to play bass he wasn't that great on the bass but right he met astrid they fell in love he left the beatles stayed in hamburg um so the reason why astrid is on my list well, a few reasons um first one is i would say for her artistic influence on the group so as i mm -hmm. said she was a photographer um and a very brilliant and poignant one so there was actually um so Megan and I um, went to Switzerland and Italy for our honeymoon. And I was going to say Megan, a friend of yours. But <laughs> Megan, a friend of mine. Yep. <laughs> um, we were in um, Bologna during um, part Bologna. of the trip. Um, beautiful city. And That's how they say it. Uh, and as soon as we get off the train um, out of the station, we see these posters, a poster of... Beatles, uh -huh. um, kind of plastered like around the uh, bus stops. Turns out um, it was advertising a photography exhibit of Astrid Kirker's. You've told me that. I told you about. I told you about this, and I was just like, "This is why God brought us <laughs> right. to Bologna. We need <laughs> to see this exhibit." And now I know. Fortunately, <laughs> I didn't have to drag Megan there. She was a willing participant, but we saw the exhibit and. And this is the part. The open <laughs> There's water right here. And this is the um, and this is the part of the podcast where um, you know, I wish that you know we could have some kind of visual feed for our our listeners. We're but, working on it. Yeah, but I'll show you, Jen. I'm, right now, I'm showing um here uh, just a very so it's a picture of the four Beatles. Right. But they're not smiling. They're not in a you know kind of. They're not in a gimmicky sort of pose. Like, John's sitting in this wooden chair. Mm -hmm. um, 
George and Ringo are standing beside I him. I don't think I've seen that photo before. Um, Paul is sitting on the ground, not looking at the camera. It's black right, and white. Right, right. Nearly all of you know, yeah. Pastor's photos are um, black and white. And so she, early on, like started taking like photos of the band. She had like one photo shoot that was it's pretty well known among fans where um, they they're like standing in front of this like you know abandoned carnival scene and it's you know when Stuart Sutcliffe and Pete Best were in the group and just these like awesome poses these really just kind of striking images and yeah. like the it's a very um, she captured a very like sophisticated and sort of like serious side of the mm-hmm. the group and it's just sort of like a reminder to me that the Beatles were like they were serious artists. They, they, um, yeah, they had, you know, artistic interests outside the realm of rock and roll. They, they had a good artistic sense, um, that I think played out into their career later on. And I think Astrid was kind of one of the people that really just brought that out the group at a very yeah. early sort of nation, nascent stage right. of the group. So, so that's interesting to me because, or I think stereotypically, or maybe this is just my own stereotypes of the Hamburg phase, that was the Beatles' primitivism phase where they're just glorified cover bands banging out three-chord tunes. I mean, in a sense, they, they were, but, like, they were, one, they were, like, that was a crucial time because they were, like, just yeah. playing... You know, nights, nights on right. woodshedding and just, you know, earning their keep. And, and um, but, yeah, they... But they had that avant-garde or, mm-hmm. like, larger aesthetic impulse. They're v- very much so. They Even um, when they were playing Little Richard covers yeah. in, in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, you know, and, like, you know, Astrid comes out of this, like, you know, German artsy fartsy scene. Yeah. It's not like the Beatles shoot her away or like you know were yeah. just buffoons. They, they, they welcomed it. In addition to you know her artistic relationship with the group and her relationship with Stuart Sutcliffe, um, she was very much she was kind of a mother figure to them while they were in Hamburg. Like they would come over her Interesting. house. Interesting. Was she like, older than they were? Maybe a little bit. I don't know that they, she was much older than them, but close to the same age. Maybe a little. Even, bit. I mean, the Beatles were still ridiculously a, young. When yeah, they were there, even if she was a couple years older, yeah, that would have they, registered as different. I, I kind of labored over this choice because I thought really long and hard about Stuart Sutcliffe, who didn't actually make it onto my list, but he sort yeah. of, sort of does through, through Astrid a little mm-hmm. bit, and like right, and that's Two for one. yeah, and that's a very like. That's a like very Shakespearean story on on it sounds so, like so you know Stuart and Astrid they you know they enter this relationship they you know they're engaged and um, he's sort of pursuing like his sort of artistic career in in Hamburg right he's, right um, and then he dies very suddenly he died from a brain hemorrhage at age 21 um so this very like you know very tragic short end to his life it's, it's a little bit eerie actually there are like some even some parallels between Stuart and astrid and john and yoko yeah you know 
Astrid mm. and Yoko both like these kind of exotic, well, exotic to the Beatles right. artists. Yeah. And yeah. this very passionate love story that ends too soon. With tragedy. Yep. And she, huh. so she, she's the link between, well, she's the link between Stuart Sutcliffe and Klaus Vorman, who also not on this list, but mm -hmm. still like that, that Hamburg connection, later yep. played with the group, but what, like, she she is a little bit of that linchpin, and I would I would say like that sort of like avant garde influence, that European influence. Yeah. I mean, even like you could like make a case for the hairstyle being. I think, right. I think Astrid might have like either encouraged it or like well wore that style. Yeah. Of you know that sort of like that sort of mop top look. Yeah. Was sort of like a known as like a. Kind of continental look it was big in paris at the time and in, in, yeah. in the uk it was all rocker greased hair elvis look yeah um john yeah. and paul they they took a little trip to paris during that time saw all the like mop tops there and right they, they were like let's get our hair cut yeah and then they came back to england they're like hey guys this is cool now this is, <laughs> this is how we wear hair and like yeah it's part it's part of that that influence a little more sophisticated um just a little more um yeah a little more kind of power to it yeah what would set them apart or and the the british invasion was more than just beetle stones and who but mm -hmm. if if the stones were pretty strongly facing america and mm -hmm. if if the who had more of a reputation of like a working class British band, the Beatles had this European exoticism the whole time where they, mm -hmm. it seems like they were considered differently from the very beginning. So that, and then also reinforced because they were doing things in the studio and otherwise that mm -hmm. were just very different. But mm -hmm. if, but if the Stones were putting American blues and R&B on steroids, which I love, mm -hmm. and Pete Definitely. Townsend was being Pete Townsend. The Beatles had this whole other thing going on, mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, so no, no Hamburg, no Beatles, and mm -hmm. no, I guess no, no, no Astrid in some ways. That's that's a crucial yeah. part of their development yeah. in their story. Yeah, and it and it and it stayed with them. Uh, yeah, and Astrid Astrid continued to, you know, she stayed friends with the group mm -hmm. and, um, afterwards, and like definitely left her. Her mark and yeah I, I like the way you described that sort of like that mix of like it, it's weird to call it european exoticism i mean like but in a way right. like the uk and continental europe are kind of different animals yeah um and and that that mix of influences is certainly there like england america germany elsewhere um yeah India, you know that the beatles ended up absorbing for sure um and um, it it matters. It's this like undercurrent that most people don't quite notice, but I mean, it's one of so many things that makes the group so important. It's there in the music so and it's there in the aesthetic. So yeah. if you have Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, what's the story? They met on the train mm -hmm. because Mick saw Keith holding Robert Johnson records or something, yeah, so, something which is awesome, yeah. <laughs> like on its own. On on its own two legs, but it, yes, yeah, it's, it's just a different set of influences mm -hmm. that, and and then also, 
they had the right producer, they had the right everything. Yeah, uh, yep. stars aligned for them, yeah. for sure. Awesome. Asteroid, that's great. Jesse, who we got number two? We are getting to the top of this. We are getting to this list. We are getting here. We're, um, we're scaling the, the, the Alps. The, these top two. Iger sanctioned. These top two definitely um, appear probably on most people's top two um, for, for, for fifth Beatles lists, and rightly so. Uh, number two, Brian Epstein. Um, he was yep. the manager for the group. So, um, you know, and that meant that he was, you know, kind of responsible for the Beatles' business dealings, yep. um, including, you know, booking gigs for them, yeah. um, promoting them, um, and kind of managing their their image, their public right. image. Yeah. And so, um, so Brian Epstein, uh, native of Liverpool, um, with a very posh accent and, and demeanor. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't know he was from Liverpool by hearing him speak. Uh, but um, he, I think, like, had, I think he's, he sort of had these different, like, artistic pursuits, including acting at different times. But he, I think, ran a record shop mm-hmm. at one point, like, at the time that he first encountered the Beatles. And his original encounter with the Beatles was through a performance of theirs at the Cavern Club. Yep. And he fell in love with the group right then and there mm-hmm. and just from that point on um he was a true believer a true believer he he believed in the group earnestly to the point where he believed that the beatles were going to be the biggest band in the world before they believed yeah that, right right believe that you know yeah um and he he approached the group and basically asked to, to manage them. And like, and it was kind of weird for like Liverpool groups in that scene to sort right. of have a manager. Yeah. It's kind of this like sort of out of people's league sort of thing. But I mean, the Beatles. And he wasn't a music. He didn't manage other bands before the Beatles. No. Right. Yeah. He, so. he managed other groups afterwards, but mm-hmm. uh, along with the Beatles. But, um, but yeah, he, I think what made him a great manager is that he had, you know, very good business sense mm-hmm. um art sense image sense yeah. and he he just he served the group tremendously in in that way um so you can you can kind of compare him for a minute contrast him for a minute to, to two other uh famous managers of of the era okay um you know compare him to colonel tom parker i have thoughts there <laughs> go ahead um who, um, I mean, you, you can tell me more about him, Jim, but, you know, my understanding of Carl Tom Parker is that he just kind of uh, milked Elvis and sort of took advantage of of him, was very much a businessman and not really, um, yeah. you know. Um, can, can, can you concur with that uh, reading? Of, uh, give, give me your second person. That, okay, uh, second and, person would be um, to Colonel Tom. that I sort of contrast him with is Andrew Lou Goldham. Who's mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones manager during the right. 60s heyday? Who I think was probably a good fit for the Stones mm-hmm. all in all, but like sort of sensationalized them, right? Um, in a way that Brian Epstein really didn't. I think Brian Epstein definitely like kind of respected the the, the Beatles and their like artistic vision, like presentation more yeah. than someone like Andrew the Golden did. 
plus Andrew Lou Goldham produced the Stones in, right. uh, for their early records, yeah. which Brian Epstein purposely did not. He he kept his hands out of the Beatles' actual artistic output and their like musical yeah. output, and he limited himself to business dealings and, mm-hmm. um, and their image. Um, right. The image piece is very important. He was the one who um, put them in suits, took them out of the leather, yep. um, put yep. them in suits. Um, and not like, you know, baggy 50s era suits, but like slim, like slim cut right. pants, like Cuban leather boots and skinny ties, like they look sharp. Yeah. Um, and he had to kind of convince them to do that. Um, they weren't too keen on that. I remember reading first. about that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it seems like Epstein had a great sense of when to defer to the Beatles themselves mm-hmm. versus when to put his foot down and say mm-hmm. guys you got to trust me and on that's this. what a brilliant manager does he didn't right. just like he didn't um you know just uh you know, stroke their ego or just like kiss their butts like he, yeah he 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 had a vision himself right. and um and it aided the group yeah very well so so going back to the colonel tom comparison elvis manager mm-hmm. I would actually consider Epstein as a Colonel Tom 2.0, which is which mm. I mean is a compliment and not mm. as a criticism. So, what and there, there's this Elvis movie out right now, like the Boz Lerman, mm-hmm. the with Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom, mm-hmm. and my my mini apologetic for Colonel Tom, even though he's a really shady character, the pop stardom was an entirely new thing. And mm-hmm. so there was no playbook or game plan for how to manage a pop musician or a, a rock musician. So so you had the Bing Crosbys early before Elvis, mm-hmm. but rock was new and there was a genuine question as to whether whether rock would survive going from the 50s to the 60s. So at the end of the 50s, Elvis went to the army, Chuck Berry arrested, Little Richard retired, at least for a while, from rock to go into the ministry, Buddy Holly died. And so if you look at uh, pop chart and rock charts in the very early 1960s, Mm -hmm. there was very little rock music. Mm -hmm. And so... Colonel Tom managed Elvis in such a way that he stayed commercially relevant in an era when Elvis had a lot of doubters that it would even be possible for a rock artist to stay commercially relevant. But the downside of that is that commercial relevancy was Colonel Tom's Mm -hmm. bottom line which in some ways was exactly what Elvis wanted. Mm. And so he, mm. he, he didn't go, didn't always go against Elvis' wishes, but because there had been no rock manager before, he was making it up as he went along. Mm. And so sometimes gets a bad rap, I think, based on the retrospective. Mm. And Elvis became a walking parody later in his sure, career, sure. career as well. But then Epstein is 2.0, saw the Beatles as their own discrete artistic thing and mm-hmm. 
not always saw, having to like reinvent them every you know, right. Six but months, but yeah. but but he saw he saw the Beatles' future before the Beatles did and before anybody else. And so, I think Colonel Tom envisioned what a commercially successful rock artist could be much long much farther down the road than anybody of his generation. And if you think about all those other fifties rock and rollers that survived. Jerry Lee Lewis, mm-hmm. Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Little Richard, none of them had commercial careers into the 60s and 70s like Elvis did. And that's Colonel Tom mm. who just busted his butt mm-hmm. to keep Elvis relevant, at least commercially. Sure. Epstein had both the commercial vision, so that's the connection with Colonel Tom, but mm. also the artistic vision for the Beatles not telling them what to do, but seeing their artistic importance in ways that furthered their commercial career. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of the perfect amalgamation of those different qualities. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess one of those what ifs is, what if there's no Epstein? Do you have any, what, what, what would the Beatles have been? And it's hard to believe, right? Yeah. Hard, hard to conceive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't toy around so much with some of those Beatles what ifs because, like, usually my answer to that is, like, well, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. right now. Uh, <laughs> That's be- a different Because podcast. as much as the uh, fifth Beatles category annoys me a little bit, yeah, it's like, you know, they sort of needed the people around them to, to be who they right. became. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and thanks for kind of enlightening me on, on, on Colonel Tom Parker. I think it's some really good points there and i think maybe like a difference in that is it like you know the i think the beatles artistic vision combined with epstein's sort of managerial skill is what created such a successful right you know successful and, and and relevant result and like while like you know elvis had that success into the 60s is like at least, you know, from my perspective, like something less artistically durable. For sure. You know? Yeah. Um, I'm, 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 I'm like I'm leaning back from you. That's no, it's true. All this no, the uh, sure I'm the, gonna... the for every great Elvis moment in the '60s, there's a lot of no room to rumble in a sports car, or yoga is as yoga does. So there's there's no. That's that's a, that's one of the yeah. oh <laughs> yep no. so when... is that like a Forrest Gump parody? Yeah, it's it, it it's on the internet, so feel free. But it's it, it's horrible. I, I, but I've, I've never mentioned into Elvis films. I don't. But I do think that Epstein rescued the Beatles from mm-hmm. having some of those artistic troughs, mm-hmm. he, even if he wasn't hands on in terms of the artistry itself. At least my impression of Epstein is that he he had a preternatural sense of where the band needed to go, mm-hmm. and I would say that's true. Made it happen, right? Yeah, yep. And then when he so he died like early thirties. What did he die? Was it uh, accidental overdose? Of that's right. Pills, but like um, he was sort of in a bad place, and um, at that point, and 
when he when he died very very shocking to the group and that was like kind of one of the moments where like in some ways people argue that that's the beginning of the end for the Beatles yeah the Beatles never quite got back together and like Alan Klein was sort of managing the group at a certain point just like and there was tension there was was Klein more of a John or a Ringo or I think I remember reading that one of those two really liked Klein, but the other didn't. John, John was keen on, especially keen on Klein. I think George okay. was too. Paul was the one who was, I think, the most suspicious and like ended up suing the rest of the Beatles over, you know, financial That's what stuff. That's it was, right? Like, um, Klein did end up. Hard to what, make music yeah. with people you're suing. He, had, he ended up actually. I th- he, Ended up giving the getting the Beatles a better deal financially than Epstein actually did, which was interesting. Huh? Because. Um, Paul, well, under, his, underrated businessman. Uh-huh. He, well, he, did, he did that for the Stones before doing that for the Beatles. Yeah. You know, Alan Klein's not, you know, so much of a villain the way um, Carl Tom Parker tends to get portrayed. Right, I guess, so. right. But but Brian Epstein was, was special um, and integral uh, to yes. the success. So I, I assume I know the number one, but maybe I don't. But even if there's... Even if it's who I think, mm-hmm. it's, how, how it's, could it not I'm be? certain it's who, who you think. Um, it's George Martin. Right. Sir George Martin. Sir George. Sir George. Um, none other. Uh, and actually, it was both both Brian Epstein and George Martin have been named by Paul at two different points as if ever there was a fifth Beatle, it was. <laughs> he said it about Multiple Brian at one point. Beatles. He said it about George at one point. Okay. I think. I think he, but um, but for for my money, if if there ever was a fifth Beatle, and there never was a real fifth Beatle, it's always and forever yeah. John Paul George and Ringo. Right. But if there ever was one, it was George Martin. So George Martin, um, their producer, who was um, staff producer at EMI, um, when he um, was assigned to um, produce the group during their. EMI audition in June 1962. Mm-hmm. Um, George Martin has a he had a, a classical background. Yeah, so classically trained musician, pianist. Um, he you know got into record production, worked for EMI, and you know very um, a little bit like Epstein, very like pretty straight-laced and, and, and very posh. Um, yeah. And sort of early All on was this, characters. like, kind of fatherly figure. And, and the, you know, and, you know, we've talked about the recording engineer, we've talked about the manager as these, you know, important roles um, yeah. for, for groups. The producer is um, a crucial The most um, important, part of the ma- the, aside from a band member. Right? Yeah, like, ab- absolutely. More important than he's, some well, band like, going members, back yeah. to the filmology, the, the producer is the director. The director, yeah. You know, he's not an actor, he's not on the screen, he's not the star. Right. But, but just like directors kind of take on their own sort of artistic yeah. aura and, like, are kind of, like, take ownership over the mm-hmm. the, the work in, yeah. in film. Like, a, totally. you know, a Steven Spielberg or a Stanley Kubrick, like, you know, in the recording world, you have you know people like Phil Spector, like it would like those Ronettes and Crystals and Righteous Brothers records. Those were Phil Spector records, and Phil Spector never let you forget that yeah. those were that was his right. work. Yeah, um, a Christmas gift for you from yeah. me. <laughs> from me. <laughs> 
Um, George Martin uh, did not have that kind of ego, thank God. Um, yeah. But, um, <laughs> nor the, nor, nor but, the body but, count. <laughs> no. <laughs> sorry. I'm not sorry about that. that was, um, but... Um, but George Martin knew what he was doing um, as a producer working with artists and, you know, and just really like informing the group sound and like, you know, like any good producer, like tells the group what they need to hear and like lets yeah. them know what they need to do right. to, to make the record they should be making, to yeah. put out the music they should be putting out, but yeah. also recognizes a you know, recognizes talent when he sees it and is able to step out of the way. So, like, yeah. an early um, early instance with George Martin and the Beatles was when they were, um, they had passed the audition for EMI, they were getting ready to record their debut single. Um, George Martin wanted them to record a song called How Do You Do It? It was a very, mm. very English, very British. Right. How do you do what you do to me? There's actually, they... They ended up recording it. You uh-huh. can hear it on the anthology, but um, um, written by an outside composer, right? Um, and he was sure that this was going to be a a, a hit. Hmm. Um, it actually ended up becoming a hit for um, I believe Jerry and Pacemakers. But the Beatles came back to him and said, "No, we want to record Love Me Do as huh. our debut," which was right, that was a kickoff. bold move on the Beatles' part. Yeah, it was a self-composed song. And they're coming back. They're like this fresh group, fresh onto this. Like, right. yeah. they, they like they don't have an album deal yet. Like they're just putting out the single, mm-hmm. which if it flops, they're they're done. Right. Yeah. But, um, and there was a little which bit was an innovation. And, just sidebar: Elvis didn't write his own stuff. No. And the Rolling Stones, especially early in their yeah, career, Brian, Brian Jones did not compose. It right. Was, you know, um, yeah. For sure. Um, and then. Mick and Keith weren't doing it until later, but you know, from the, like by then, by the time you know the Beatles had started with EMI, that John and Paul had very much been working on their craft. Yeah. Um, and so George made the decision. George Martin made the decision to to get out of the way and like, okay, we'll put this out. Um, he did end up. So there's one version of the recording that Ringo plays on, but I think it was so. When they auditioned for EMI, it was Pete Best that was still with the group. George Martin did not like huh. Pete's playing. Um, I don't either. <laughs> I, I'm glad he was not. Um, Pete Best not kept on this in the list. group, not on this list. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> um, and then ended up hiring a session drummer. Like made that decision, like yeah. many producers do. So the like version that of Bobby did that most people know. Ringo does not play on it. Oh, so I didn't know that. drummer on it. Huh. Um, and, um, but then, you know, after that, that, that single started making noise. Mm-hmm. Um, they got ready to do their second single and they brought forth uh, Please Please Me as the song they wanted to record, which yep. when, um, when the Beatles first brought it forth to George Martin, it was this, apparently this very slow Roy Orbison style ballad oh really come on come on come on come on and, and like huh and george martin was like uh yeah that's not quite working i think you should speed it up so that's fascinating because so much of that early rock and roll the producers were trying to s- slow down or make more quiet 
rock songs, but he actually pushed them in the other direction. Yeah, but like. Well, but then I other mean, times would but do. But like, I don't think he would have done that if the if the Beatles also hadn't like been presenting like what was like you know yeah it was it's, please excuse me is a fast song but it's not yeah. brash it's not it's not hound dog it's not right. like you know in your face little richard screaming at yeah the piano but like it's it's sophisticated mm-hmm. but it's up tempo it's upbeat right and, yeah um, right and he he even told the group after they recorded okay that's your first number one and sure enough it it was and then just uh-huh. from there from then on it was just this beautiful working relationship between the Beatles and George Martin mm-hmm. um, and just Martin continuing to, to nurture the group as they're recording, but yeah. also just recognizing their brilliance and just working with what they've got. And like George Martin also had the advantage of being um, musically trained, able to, to read music, which none of the Beatles knew how to do. Right. So, so, they're so off- he could stand toe to toe with mm-hmm. music, with, Paul and John. Yeah, and bringing in the like opinions. the eventually the classical influences. Right. He was actually the one who convinced so like Paul brings yesterday to to George brilliant song brilliant mm-hmm. on its own. Yeah. Paul plays on the just on his acoustic. It's great. George is like, what would you think of adding a string quartet to this? And Paul's like, no, 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 you can't you can't put strings on a Beatles record. That doesn't. And, but, yeah. Sure enough, George convinced him that that was the right move, and it most certainly was. I mean, yes, yeah. and it was, and like, and nearly all of the classical arrangements you hear on on Beatles records are George Martin's arrangements, um, right? Which is also immeasurably crucial contribution yeah and and those are arrangements so mm-hmm. whether 1960s or today a lot of the time and jesse you know and megan knows a lot more you both know a lot more about classical music than i do but for my untrained ear with classical music so often string sections in pop and rock music are underused because they're mm-hmm. basically just like glorified keyboards where mm-hmm. they're just kind of like playing along with the chord changes but doing not super interesting stuff but like a george martin with uh with his string arrangements they were genuinely composed musical elements mm-hmm. that had their own internal logic very, to it that, that, that weren't just playing the changes mm-hmm. with uh, different songs. Very much to complement the songs. Right. And, like, and the Beatles are giving their input in like, you know, how like it should sound like with those instruments yeah. in play. Um, and very imaginative uses of the, everything from like the French horn on For No One from Revolver, the piccolo trumpet on Penny Lane, the mm-hmm. um, classical arrangements on strawberry fields the the orchestral um climax on um that day in the life um all the like um that might be my favorite the the day in the life yeah that's that's an otherworldly experience hearing that um the um or you have um there are a few instances of some some campy british 20s music hall performances namely songs like uh when i'm 64 and honey yeah. pie with these wonderful uh clarinet like read arrangements right yeah um, and george martin just campy you know, those. yeah Very campy um so he he worked with the group um through 
um, you know, from, from the start of through the White Album, uh, as the Beatles started, you know, focusing on, as they kind of left their Beatlemania phase, yeah. getting into like the psychedelic era, Revolver Pepper, around that time, the Beatles were like kind of increasingly um, taking a little more control of their, their music. Mm-hmm. They were starting to like get behind the mixing desk yep. and um, they were attending the mixing sessions mm-hmm. and like kind of making you know so some of those decisions and increasingly like kind of taking the reins from from george martin a little bit which like i think kind of became started to become a little more common like you mentioned pet sounds um earlier yeah brian wilson was producing that record and <laughs> right. it's often the case where it became like the case where like the artists themselves were yeah the producers which most um, of the time i feel like is a bad idea it's, it's sort of like a, a person that represents people that represent themselves in court have a fool yeah. for a client sort of thing yeah. I, I for the most part i prefer a different production vision and mm-hmm person then well it's like you tend to like be an expert at like one form of yeah it you know like one form of you know art whether that's um you know playing or producing right engineering whatever um it can you know it it often works sometimes i think with with the artists taking the reins certainly with beach boys and brian wilson producing but but yeah um so like one actually here's here's a what if for you this is okay. you know a what if i'm sure most people don't think about for, for the beatles but i think about it what if the white album had been a single album and not a double album oh so does that mean you go to the track listing and excise half the songs mm-hmm. or Decide which songs are better. Right. And kind of cut those down and edit the album differently and sort of weave them together. Yeah. That is what George Martin wanted for the White Album. He really tried, he tried hard to convince the group, hey, let's cut this down. Let's Mm. let's really make, like, fantastic album. Yeah. Cut this down. Beatles put their foot down and said, no, we put out a double album. And to his his grave, George Martin believed that, it should have been a single album. And I don't know what my take is. It's a good I can see that, actually. There's, I mean, there's arguably some artistic bloat. There's, the White Album is wonderful yeah. in so many ways. It's, I think, it's the follow-up album to Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. Um, even though Magical Mystery Tour came before it, it was actually right. an EP in the UK. Not, 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 not quite a genuine album, but... Mm-hmm. It, it still it had the. The brilliance and originality of of Pepper without mm-hmm. the, polished, production. Yeah. Which is kind of like, I think the Beatles were trying to get away from that somewhat and mm-hmm. sort of like. Strip. I think uh, the, the band had put out music from Big Pink at that point. I think it was starting to, like, and their influence was starting to make its way. And I yeah. think maybe subconsciously or otherwise it was stars starting to influence groups like the Beatles, like in the way they made music and it. So like having, having a sprawling double album mm-hmm. and having this more chaotic, more rough edged sound worked really well, certainly in the context of the Beatles and their output. Yeah. Um, it's like, I, I, and I think about the Beatles albums in their context and the context of, yeah. you know, 
of, of when they were released and what the Beatles were doing, what was going on, the rest of music in that time. But like, if you're to take the White Album like purely on its own, just mm-hmm. as a standalone work, and how well do the songs flow into each other, and how like, what's the production quality like? Yeah. If George Martin had had a say, and if he had like had more of the production reins, um, you could make the case, I think, that it would have been a stronger album in and of itself. Jeff Emmerich also quit the White Album sessions halfway through. Oh, really? So he wasn't involved in the okay. whole process either. So that's another what if. What if that yeah. team was still right. there? Right. Oh, man. So I, you like the White Album, I think, a little bit more than I do. I think... So I would, I would be more easily on board with a, with a, single, with a single LP, but then... You have the legend of the White Album sessions as well. So, so you mm-hmm. have whichever songs end up getting cut, they they live on as legends right, right. And, and these outtakes. Great White Wonder, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is it is a, it is a pretty fascinating what if. And I think one of the beauties for all of the tragedy of the Beatles at different points that the fact that their catalog is so self-contained, mm-hmm. I think, has serve their artistic legacy well where you don't have late period going back to the stones and the who again where the the post 60s output of the well i guess there are high points you know into the mid 70s for both of those bands but but with the beatles you don't they don't have that period of decline and less artistic vitality and that sort of thing so mm-hmm. you have just just the the cream of the crop yeah it's um that's a it's it's a little you know it's i think it's sad that the beatles ended when they they did like it would have been great to just have more output from them but yeah. in, in you know in other ways like it's sort of like a you know neil young it's better to burn out than to fade away sort of situation yeah and like Groups like the Rolling Stones and, dare I say it, Bruce Springsteen have <laughs> more albums. And like, and when when like, when you make more works, like some works are not going to be as good, yeah, as as others. That's just like, just kind of the way. Yeah, that's way interesting. Goes. So Bruce's albums, by contrast, I would put his second through eighth albums. Mm-hmm. So as as good a stretch of seven albums, I'd, I'd put those seven albums against anybody. So that's mm-hmm. uh, the, after the first album, yeah. which was uneven. Th- that's for Wild me. The innocent, period, yeah, yeah, Wild Innocent, Born to Run, Darkness, yeah. River, Nebraska, Born yeah. in the USA, Tunnel of Love. Right. Uh, that's a pretty perfect artistic statement. But if I had to choose between, Jim, would you have preferred that, God forbid, Bruce gets hit by a bus in 1989? And so he just has that golden right, period versus right. a more uneven catalog for the last two thirds of his career. I take the uneven catalog because there's some great, right. great songs and great albums. But then the the, the flip side is it, it's a messier artistic statement than mm-hmm. what you have with just it, a concentrated Beatles. It, it's it's amazing what that like shortness of career and brevity of like or even like a person's life or yeah. you know in, in the music world does whether it's like you know Jeff Buckley making Grace and right. then like never making you know or starting to make another album but like just 
Yeah, what was dying. that? Songs for My Sweetheart the Drunk? Which... Yeah, which, which I've, I've listened to a couple of those tracks in there. They're, they're good. Great. Yeah. Um, but, like, would... But, like, what if Buddy Holly had lived on? And, like, would he have, like... he? I mean, like... Yeah. He was starting to make some kind of syrupy, like, not was, rock songs. Right. That so, th- so if you listen, on. what do they call it? The apartment tapes that they, yeah, they, they recorded, wonderful. which which are these. which are amazing. But he was so living in Lubbock, and Jesse, you've been there, I've and been there, uh, the, your, uh, old, uh, <laughs> the, the old crew, the with with Buddy Holly, he was certainly going in a schmaltz direction, and so in some ways the plane crash rescued him from this long period of like fat buddy face <laughs> where you just have giant 1960s glasses and a uh, swim trunks and bathrobe just padding around las vegas and the yeah so it, the the beatles kept it was just prime beatles all the way through yeah yeah <laughs> I think we did it, Jesse. This was a successful Beatles conversation. Yeah, so Turtle Doves, let me know what you think. And just to round out, Jesse, can can we do a couple of Turtle Doves from the last podcast? Of course. With Courtney and five pleasant surprises or puzzlements. I actually did not as a, listen to that podcast. I'll check it out. Okay, right. so we have a couple things here. Courtney, for for the top five either pleasant surprises or puzzlements as a New Jersey transplant, so mm-hmm. long time mm-hmm. West Coaster, she she said, for example, the beach tag system for the Jersey Shore is crazy. Why why do you have to pay to go on a public beach? I went to California the, one time and I'm like, you can go on the beach for free? <laughs> Who does that? Why do they let you do that? Right. <laughs> Call the cops. So, so, so Courtney, Courtney opines concerning the beach tech system. We had, I'll, I'll say this. So it came through text. So, so I won't say who it's from. Dear Jim, the solution to your beach tag problem. Number one, if a teenager approaches, run into the ocean. Number two, <laughs> Only buy that many tags if they specifically ask you to and then count you. Number three, keep your tags in one bag. Flash the bag when taggers ask to see. P.S. Telling them family already has tags on the beach also works. <laughs> so have have you ever evaded the beach tag system? Oh, yeah. No, we, we go to the, the free ones. Right. Or the like, we go to Island Beach State Park where they only charge you per car and they charge you less if you're from New Jersey and less if it's on the weekdays. And we, we beat yeah. the system. Yeah, okay, good. So, Jesse, <laughs> long term, you've, you've only you've spent four years outside of New Jersey, give or take. Eight. So, there we go. We have a native. Also, we have Turtle Love Maya writing in. Love Courtney's podcast. As a transplanter myself, although not as recent, there are still a few things that I find odd about New Jersey and don't think I'll ever get used to. Why people going down the shore as opposed to going down to the shore. How is that proper? Anyway, I've come to love New Jersey and its idiosyncrasies. And I laughed out loud when Courtney said she didn't understand New Jersey's obsession with Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) 
You're not gonna <laughs> like to hear this, Jim, but I would second that question. Ta ta, turtle dove, Maya. Oh, Maya. There's still time. But thank you for writing again. Then we also have turtle dove, <laughs> Scott. Jim, your interview with Courtney spoke to me as a fellow West Coaster. Mm-hmm. So, so I won't say who, but but Scott, as a West Coaster, I was going to say something about murder. Oh, well. But I probably shouldn't. Oh. Do you do you know the Scott story? Yes, I do. With murder. Yes. Okay. Like that. <laughs> right, but Scott himself is not a murderer. Oh, let the, let's neither is George Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Let's definitely hit home. They agree. He and his wife agree. I, I said, Southern people are nicer, but East Coasters are more honest. We talked about that at some point. Right. Hanging out as someone who frequented California beaches to go swimming and hang out on the boardwalk, it boggles my mind that you need a beach pass or tag to hang out there. I don't understand it. Never will. And then also, Courtney said how strange it was that you can't get food at breweries. So we talked about the, the alcohol, like the medallion, the, the licenses and how you, yeah, yeah it's uh, just weird. It's just the bureaucracy. Right. Scott, Scott seconded that. I will say that I have used John. Courtney said I don't understand J-A-W ad. At least once and unironically when talking with someone. Unironically. I felt that's when I crossed over from being a Californian to being a New Jerseyan, or is it New Jerseyite? New Jerseyite? I don't know. I've been in South Jersey for you know, 23 years, and I've never used John uh, unironically. I don't think I ever will. <laughs> but it's good. It's good every time. What What do you say? So, so do you say New, New Jerseyan? I don't really say anything with that. Like. Right. I don't think there is like a, um, a, what is it, adjective or adverb form of, of that. Like there's, I, there's like, there's Rhode Islander, there's Californian, Louisianian, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Yeah, I don't know what I say. So what does it say about our state that we have no descriptor? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's it's because it's it's just a state of mind. We we don't actually need an an actual term for it. So Scott Maya, person that texted, thank you for writing in. You can also write in at five golden things pod at gmail.com. Jesse, thank you so much for doing this. We have solved many mysteries. Yeah, I appreciate your in my pleasure in. and I I will not turn anybody away who wants to have a conversation with me about the Beatles. Find me at church. <laughs> we'll talk. I will enlighten you some right. more. There, there, there's more where that came from. Mm-hmm. Jesse, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Do you wanna, do you wanna say "Tata Turtle Doves" to people? <laughs> if you will allow me uh, that honor, maybe I should say it in a uh, Liverpudlian accent. Do. Oh man. I'm going to do it. Uh, forgive me for this. Ta-ta, turtle doves. Wow. That was definitely a top five episode of Five Golden Things, The Liberty Lists. And remember, kids, schadenfreude ain't just a river in Egypt. Wade in the water a little deeper anytime at libertycollingswood.org and find us at the usual socials. Make us a top five follow, and you'll always be our number one. Toodle-pip.
think uh, Fast Night. So Fast Night, it happens on the the Monday after Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. It starts Monday at four thirty a.m. Okay, precisely. It's in Switzerland, <laughs> and it ends right. Thursday, four thirty a.m. And it's basically three days of 